electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Fast, the Fed's not backing down. Chair Powell vowing again to take strong measures to fight inflation. Stocks not fighting the Fed's messaging right now. Could it be that investors want Powell to go big now so they don't have to later? Plus, mortgage rates spiked to their highest level since the financial crisis. We'll drill down on how this is impacting the banks, the builders, and the home furnishing stocks. And later... Are you ready for some football? How about sports betting? We will chart the record-breaking season of wagers set to take the NFL by storm. And we'll be joined by the master of the telestrator, the one and only Steve Kornacki of NBC. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feynman, Courtney Garcia, and joining us once again from Code, Dan Nathan. And we start off with the big market puzzle. U.S. stock indices all closing higher for the second straight day, even as Jerome Powell doubles down on his hawkish policy stance. The Fed chair saying rates will rise to fight inflation, quote, until the job is done. Expectations for a 75 basis point hike at the central bank's next meeting jumping to 86 percent on his comments. Equity markets seem to shrug this all off. But the next CPI report just around the corner. So could we get a reason for the Fed to get even more aggressive for longer? And I know, Tim, we don't usually talk about claims but the claims number indicates a very strong labor market, which sort of adds an interesting twist to this whole sort of puzzle that we have. Yeah, the, the claims number, and you've had kind of two sides. You've had continuing, and then you, you, you've had some of the jobless claims numbers actually show some strength. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we definitely have some sense that the participation rate in the labor market is starting to move higher, which could bring down, uh, or excuse me, bring up the joblessness or essentially mean that more people on a percentage basis are out of work. Powell's comments today, I, I think, are critical. One, because I think they cement 75 basis points when the Fed meets. I think the market rallying in the face of that is a combination of, I think the Fed has managed expectations. We're about to go into a quiet period for the Fed this weekend. I think we then have truly a quiet period leading up into that Fed meeting. And we're a trading show. And I think it sets up for a window where you actually into that CPI number where headline inflation will come down. I mean, gas prices at the last read were, were five bucks. They're going to be about 378 a gallon based upon where this number is going to, the headline is going to be better. It's a long way of saying that although he is resolute and although we believe the Fed for now, um, I do think that the market has an opportunity to rally. And I think the expectations uh, have been built up, but I think that the market sentiment and positioning is so poor that we were oversold going into this. Um, The language that he used, I'm surprised that the probability didn't go higher than 86%. We're going to act forthrightly. We are committed. We're going to act strongly. Forthrightly, forthrightly which very is a very under, underrated it's, it's, word. It really should be it used says much, something. More, much more often, as we have been doing. Well, mm-hmm. As they have been doing, there's been 75 basis points. So to me, when I read that, I was like, oh, that's in the cards now. Uh-huh. I don't know. Do we ever get that much higher than 86%? I don't know. Yeah. But I feel like, I mean... Then we had that big question mark, did he pivot, did he not? I think none of us on the desk thought that he pivoted at all. He certainly made that absolutely clear two Fridays ago, or whatever that was. Absolutely clear, and the market reacted as such, right? So to have him repeat it again, I'm not surprised the market didn't react again. And so, you know, we'll see what some of the data is, but I do think we are still so far away from where they need to be that 
75, it doesn't, we still have a long way to go beyond 75. They should keep going for sure. I know one thing we always focus on is the dollar and how strong the dollar gets. But with the ECB move, that's a little bit of cover for the dollar, mm -hmm. right? If they're going to be raising... ECB's move was their biggest move ever or essentially since yeah. 1999 in the EMU when it was even formulated. So right. ECB, while you were sleeping, there was some history made. Yeah, so it closes the differential between here yes. and there yes. just a little bit. So that helps certainly uh, a, a touch, Courtney. What do you think? I mean, it's going to be about what he says, obviously, after they announce their policy decision. Right, yeah, because I think at this point, the markets have already priced in that likely 75 basis points is going to happen. But nothing in the macro picture has really changed that much than it has a couple weeks ago, right? And we are still continuing to get a lot of data points. The Fed has said over and over again, we're going to be really data dependent. So we need to say what the data comes out and shows. So if we are seeing CPI numbers coming down, which is expected, they hopefully will. Mm -hmm. That's going to help the consumer. And if we do see the labor force participation rate, which Tim mentioned, I think that's the hope is that comes up enough to bring unemployment down. That if those things happen, I think it's what the Fed is going to be doing later this year, early next, that people are so focused on. So yeah. it's not the 75 base points. This is what they say after, to your point. Dan, what are your thoughts here about the market's um, lack of reaction to Powell today? Yeah. Yeah, well, one thing that was very noticeable was the underperformance in, in Apple, Amazon, Google, and Microsoft relative to the rest of the market here. And obviously, you know, it wasn't like a rip-roaring day, especially after that 2% gains we had yesterday. I will say this, being out here at Code this week, you know, we saw the CEO of Apple, of Amazon, and of Alphabet all speak in the last 48 hours. And I will tell you this, like, all of them feel pretty confident about their businesses. None of them are speaking about the quarter. They're obviously um, focused on the cross currents in the economy and the headwinds of the economy. You guys just spent some time talking about the dollar. They all have exposure there. They all have exposure to you know rising wages and other inputs that are kind of stressing margins. So to me, I think you walk away here not feeling that the CEOs of a combined $6 trillion in market cap and over $1 trillion in sales are all that bothered. Now, we're going to see when they report, probably not for six weeks. We're going to have a lot more data between now and then. So I think you got to read some of the tea leaves a little bit. The body language from some big CEOs is not that bad right now. Dan's mentioned an Apple, and I don't know, we may have a chart on this, but Apple's performance relative to the market has really underperformed in the last 15 days. So when markets peaked in mid-April, excuse me, mid-August, um, Apple has sold off 6% more than the S&P during that time. Now, remember, when we were talking about the market from really deck one 2021 is when the triple Qs and the Nasdaq and even the S&P started to fail. But it was really the big tech stocks that started to fail then. Apple totally outperformed, and we talked about it, and we talked about the dynamics behind why it would be outperforming. Interesting here, even though everything in the release two days ago was kind of as expected, you know, there's different interpretations about keeping your ASPs flat in the U.S., maybe some sense that if you, if you do anything, you'll kill demand, and, and that's something. But again, the performance of Apple relative to the market, watch that. Hey, Dan. Uh, it's Karen. Big fan. Let me ask you something about the sort of sentiment there. I, a lot of CEOs now like, uh, you know, a Amazon, uh, I'm sorry, Alphabet, um, Snap are talking about spending money more wisely, right? They're talking about it was not yeah. the era anymore of just growth, 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 and we can spend whatever we want, and that's an afterthought to think about bringing in the budget. So that seems to have changed. You have Microsoft not hiring as much, and do you think that, is, that discipline is because they're concerned about the growth side of their business or just because that's the way they can improve their profitability? 
Yeah, and that's a great point, Karen. That is definitely something that did come out this week there. But I do think it has to do with visibility. And I think it's the lack of visibility. And then also the places in which they are exposed. I don't think any of these companies coming into 2022 thought they would see the sort of slowdown in the disruption that they saw in Europe. Maybe some of them are thinking about, you know, what does deglobalization, all the costs associated with, um, you know, on, I guess, offshoring away from China. Maybe that's going to be a big 2023 story. And you think about these companies, you think about the monopolies that they have and the moats that they have and their ability to forecast. I would just say that maybe it just seems kind of prudent. The one thing I'd say on the hiring front, I know that there was definitely some commentary about Google as it relates to costs. You know, Amazon spent the better part of the first half of this year talking about kind of rational some costs. Andy Jazzy, the CEO of the company, he did say that they're probably going to be a net higher the next year out. So I thought that was kind of interesting relative to some of the commentary that we've heard over the last two months from some other very big tech companies. Hmm. Uh, but the overall message, though, Dan, I mean, I think the question is, if all of these CEOs of the biggest companies in the entire world that make up a huge percentage of the S&P 500's market cap were bullish, wildly wouldn't we react to that? And yet the converse no. is true. Okay, Dan, you're going to say, and we're not. Yeah, no, I really. mean, Mel, that's a great point. I, I, I think the point there is that, you know, this is kind of an earnings blackout sort of period. And there was no I don't think there was anything that you could have kind of just, you know, splintered out of what they were saying and say, all right, this is means they're going to miss Q3 and guide mm-hmm. down for Q4. So that's the good news. And maybe it just has to do with like the fact of the matter is that, you know, the first half of this year, it was glass half empty. And maybe as we get closer to um, a Fed that might be taking their foot off the pedal, maybe it is time or will be in the next couple of months to start thinking about what a better 2023 might look like. Because again, you know, investors are not really investing at this point on what Q4 guidance looks like. It really is almost to a point where you have to start modeling 2023. And let's be frank, with some of the sort of data that we've been seeing, the way that lumber and gas and freight and all this stuff has been rolling over, maybe there's a decent case that rates are probably gone as high as they will in the cycle. All right, let's get to now what uh, some people consider a safe haven sector utilities. The utilities ETF XLU slightly down today, but it is up nearly 18% from June lows. The chart master sees the sector hitting new highs and says there's a rate connection. Let's bring in Carter Worth of Worth Charting. Carter, what are you looking at? Hi, team. Hi, Melissa. Yeah, just to Dan's point, there is uh, a very distinct possibility that we are seeing peak moment in rates, and it isn't random that utilities are acting fairly well. We do know this before we get to the charts. It's one of only two sectors that are up on the year. Of course, energy up big. Um, and we also know, to your point, that it's very defensive. Uh, utilities have outperformed staples, outperformed REITs, and outperformed healthcare and uh, consumer staples. Let's look at the charts, and then um, maybe we can end with a point or two. There are four charts. They're all the same. It's just different lines, different arrows, different annotations. First one, no drawings. Next one, one way to draw the lines. It's a fairly well-defined bottoming out formation. You see the June low, it bottoms, so does the market. Look at the second iteration. You can call it 
People love to name their patterns. It doesn't have to be called a cup and handle. It's what a, a setup is, a reversal before breaking out. And finally, the fourth, again, same time frame, uh, an instrument, doesn't matter what this is, it happens to be utilities, that is toying with the prospects of breaking out to new highs. But I think the important thing is this, utilities are sort of thought of as dull, uh, boring, and yet, Total return is one of the most important features of investing, as all will know. Consider this. Just go back 25 years to September of 1997. The S&P has doubled the performance of the S&P utility sector. But the total return utilities versus the total return S&P are dead even. Meaning utilities total return have kept up with the S&P total return since September of 1997. And the trajectory has been much steadier, meaning a higher quality return series. That is a staggering stat. Carter, thank wow. you. Carter Braxton. He's always got big stats. Yeah. I mean, just I'm, I'm absolutely <laughs> stunned. Since 1997, the total return equal to that of the entire market. That's amazing. So the whole time CNBC has been on the air-ish. We you could have just, just done utilities. <laughs> utilities. Yeah, it's a very different every show. Buy yeah. utilities every day. No, we're joking here. Carter, thank you. Carter Worth. Uh, Courtney, do you like utilities? Yeah, I do think we're in this period right now where regardless of us going into a recession, kind of if, if the Fed is going to force us there or not, we are going to be going into a slowing growth environment. So the question is how severe that is, is really what everybody's wondering. But either way, utilities are something that is defensive and it tends to do well in that type of environment. Especially if we do start to see commodity prices coming down, interest rates coming down. I do think that'll benefit that. So I think it'd be worth a look. Where, where they're not defensive, though, is when you look at their valuations. I mean, if you look yeah. at Next Era, which is really 15% of the XLU, I believe, in terms of the weighting, so the utilities ETF, and has outperformed even the utilities ETF by 10% over the last three months. But it, it trades at around 28, 29 times forward earnings, and historically, uh, over the last couple of years, has traded expensive uh, to the S&P, but again, an S&P that was also at a much higher multiple. I, I'll just say a couple of these companies, and these ones in particular, really benefit from some investment themes around renewables and 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 ESG. Mm -hmm. And so in some sense, they're trading expensive because they offer investors opportunities to be in pretty hot spaces. Yeah. Karen, what do you think? Too expensive? You know, I almost never look at the space, although clearly in hindsight. Should have just put money in utilities. Just, yeah, that would have been so boring, though. I guess, you know, I just feel like... Um, there's a lot of other stuff that I'd rather be in that I, you have to feel like you can outperform the market, right? And, and so I've never really been defensive. But isn't outperforming, you know, what, be, being yeah. defensive on, in a market like this, outperformance right. is absolutely to the When I think about being downside. defensive, I'm always long, right? So, but I think about, do I want to own S&P puts, right? Mm -hmm. Do I want to have any shorts on that I think would be the benefit, beneficiary of a slowing economy? Mm -hmm. Like we talked about boats and things like right. that. Um, that's the sort of way I, I'm defensive. I, probably I should really rethink that somewhat. Yeah, we should. That's, this, maybe we should do a whole segment on utilities. Who wow. knew? Record, nice. record attendance audience. <laughs> We've got some big after-hours movers coming your way. Shares of RH, Zscaler, and DocuSign all reporting results. All higher right now. We'll bring you the numbers next. Plus, our junk bonds entering a default danger zone. One money manager flagging an under-the-radar trend that could be pointing to some trouble. The details when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration 
Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Earnings alert on RH. Shares volatile after the home retailer reported a big beat on the top and the bottom lines, but worse than expected revenue guidance for the current quarter. Courtney Reagan's got the details. Court. And that guidance had sort of been all over the place up to this point, at least, sort of warning and then reporting and then warning again. But despite that warning, RH put up a stronger than expected quarter with better revenues and much stronger adjusted earnings than analysts had anticipated. Now, the furniture retailer said it was due to, quote, faster backlog relief despite a deteriorating macro economic environment. The company also points out its continued resistance to promotions, despite competitors doing so. Its gross margins improved 350 basis points, partly as a result. So RH third quarter revenue guidance is disappointing. It's looking for revenues to fall between 15 and 18 percent year over year. Consensus is for those revenues to fall a little more than 11 percent. CEO Gary Friedman, always colorful, says, quote, our expectation is for continued softening in our business trends during the remainder of the fiscal year as a result of ongoing weakness in the housing market over the next several quarters and possibly longer due to the Federal Reserve's anticipated interest rate increases and cycling of record COVID-driven sales levels in 2021. This company always seems, Melissa, lately at least, to warn a little, worried about what's going on macroeconomically, mm-hmm. but then still turn in pretty good results. Back over it's to you. It's called sandbagging, I think. Yeah. Um, inventories <laughs> were up 33% year on year. Is this sort of the, the wrinkle because the inventory issues last year, so it's just a, sort of this one-time bump? I think so. I think so. And they're also talking again about this backlog, working through the backlog. And these high levels of inventories might normally sort of be very eye-popping from retailers. But this quarter, it's sort of par for the course. And in a lot of cases, you're also, again, to your point, Melissa, lapping that inventory from last year, which levels were considerably lower than what they had hoped that they would be. So some of it is sort of making up for what they had last year. But then also when you're looking at a year over year comparison, it just looks even more inflated. Yep. Court, thanks. Courtney Reagan with all the details there. Um, RH is trading higher. Karen, Mm -hmm. do you agree with that move? Um, I do. I think that the, as Courtney brought up, and I think it's right on point, the sandbagging, Mm -hmm. as you call it, which I think is exactly the same. Do you remember that very dire sort of second outlook cut that they made? And and Gary Friedman just seemed sort of distraught. And that was sort of the worst of the sentiment. And a lot of companies talked about as the quarter went on, things got a little bit better. At one point, rates were down. Um, Not the case anymore. But I I think that I agree with her on the inventory issue as well, just my own anecdotal experience. I'm finding things delivered much quicker. So it's not a crazy expensive price for this this name. Um, And I I would take what he says about the outlook with a grain of salt, because that's I always prefer company that, uh, you know, um, outperforms, sort of under promises and over delivers, which they like to do. So I wouldn't be too concerned. It makes sense to me that the stock is sort of shrugging off that outlook. 
You have been in it once upon a time. Yeah, and, and I'm not in it. And I, I would love to own this back around 240. I, I, I don't think they can totally know what the outlook is, but we talk about their demo all the time being a lot more resilient. I love to hear that they're, they're non-promotional. I like to hear that the gross margin, while a little bit weaker on the outlook, is still north of 20 percent. And, and so I, I just think this is a, a case where we know that the interest rate hit to the housing sector hurts. It hurts them less. The multiple, to me, uh, on a trailing basis, it's it's obviously very cheap. The question is, what are they going to do next year? And I think if they hold the line here, uh, again, two-year stacks are you know up 40 percent. Um, they're not going to do in 23 what they did in 22. Right, right. But, but I, I, I want to buy the stock on weakness. It's just not right here. It rallied 63 percent off that 240. It's pulled back about 20. I think you, you've got an after-hours bounce, a bit of a relief frankly, because uh, it's fresh information, uh, but I don't think you chase it. I mean, it's not it's not luxury goods by far, by any stretch, but they are more expensive price points um, for people who have more money. And maybe those people might be a little bit more insulated during a recession. Yeah, and actually, that's exactly the point I was going to bring up right now, is you're, they're stating macroeconomic factors, mm-hmm. but the entire macroeconomic factors aren't affecting all consumers the same right now. It's your higher income consumers who aren't affected as much. We're starting to see, though, like inclinations that it is starting to hit the higher, higher income consumers. Mm-hmm. Consumers, so that could start to, to um, really impact them. But um, so far, I think we're seeing they're, they're powering through that, which I think is optimistic. We've got uh, more earnings alerts in the software space. Zscaler and DocuSign surging after hours. Both companies reporting a beat on the top and bottom lines. Guidance also coming in strong. Steve Kovacs got the latest from the report. Steve. Hey there, Mel. Yeah, two pandemic cloud software darlings are surging here after hours. Let's kick it off here with DocuSign. It's up 16% uh, after hours after a beating across the board company reporting EPS of 44 cents adjusted versus the 42 cents the street was looking for. Revenue also a beat, $622 million versus $602 million expected. And some rosy guidance beating expectations for both the current quarter and in line for the rest of the year. Now let's move on to Zscaler, that cloud company. Also a beat on EPS, 25 cents versus 20 cents expected. Revenue topping estimates at $318 million versus $305 million expected. Shares are up about 10% here after hours. Zscaler also providing better than expected guidance for its current quarter uh, and for the fiscal year. So we're getting some signals that maybe IT spend, Melissa, is not falling as much as feared. All right, Steve, thanks. Steve Kovac. Uh, Dan, what do you think of the results and the pops and the shares? Yeah, well, like a DocuSign is very interesting to me. Obviously, you know, 50% revenue growth in the two years during the pandemic, 2020 and 2021, massive deceleration. This is a trend that we've been talking about for a very long time. The stock at its lows just recently was down 85% from its all-time highs last summer. Okay, just think about that here. So maybe this valuation is a bit more reasonable, trading about four times next year's sales, still about 10% short interest here. You listen, you want to hear beaten raises. Then companies like this are lapping some of those year over year compares, and I think you're going to have some really good trading opportunities. Additionally, some of these companies are not going to be standalones. They kind of got bailed out during the pandemic because there was tremendous need for their services. But ultimately, I expect to see some M&A in some of these companies that are kind of one-trick ponies here. Hmm. Um, What does this mean, if anything, Karen, to a person who might have a short in IGB, the software ETF? Mm. Yes, it makes me really, it might be somebody I know well. Mm. I think I got to rethink it. I mean, it's come in a lot. I I look at something like DocuSign, though, was, I don't know, 75 uh, three weeks ago. Um, and now it was 53, four, whatever, going into today. So this is clearly a big bounce back. Um, I, I I, I think I have to consider covering some. It's I feel like it's sort of played out 
I'll leave, I, I won't cover it all, but I will cover some. Is the extension that higher multiple names get a respite for a little bit? Well, you're seeing that, but I, I think the respite really is in the guidance. And again, on a Zscaler, you know, in terms of bookings, you know, looking out, the, the expectation by the market is that they can go 30 to 32 percent ish, and and that they're getting close to that here. Um, this is a company that's really not making money, and this is a company that really sits smack in the middle of where the market has been punishing companies, especially in the software space, even though uh, security is a hot spot. I, I'm not chasing it. I think high multiple stocks may have another run, but I agree with Dan on DocuSign. I think that's a company that's making money. All right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Junk bonds in jeopardy? The under-the-radar trend that could be pointing to a default danger zone. The details next. Plus, lifting lift. The ride-sharing stock surging as investors buckle up. So, is this a five-star stock for your portfolio? The traders break it down next. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Let's get to Courtney Reagan for an update on the death of the Queen. Courtney. Hi, Melissa. So flowers are piling up in front of Windsor Castle and mourners are lighting candles to pay respects to Queen Elizabeth and her 70 years on the British throne. Praise for the Queen continues to come in from all over the world. Pope Francis sent a telegram commending her service to the nation and her steadfast faith. Former President Obama calls her a beacon of hope and stability. And Brazil's government has declared three days of mourning to honor Britain's longest-serving monarch. On Capitol Hill, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said he was a great admirer of the Queen and marveled that she came to power when President Harry Truman was in office. He also noted that she was the first British monarch to address a joint session of Congress. It's hard to fathom that today we have to say goodbye, because after all, most Americans, to say nothing of the British people, have never lived in a world without Her Majesty the Queen. After 70 years as the heir to the British throne, Prince Charles is now King Charles III. He held that title longer than anyone in British history. At age 73, Charles is also the oldest British monarch to take the throne. He's nine years older than the runner-up King William the fourth. Melissa, back to you. Courtney, thank you. Courtney Reagan, just a shocking uh, news event today. I would imagine that there is so much more interest in the Queen's long life, her long reign nowadays, and that people will be engaging in things like documentaries and even series 
like The Crown. I was thinking myself that I wanted to rewatch The Crown. And I I think I'm not going to be alone this weekend. Right. And you're just so this has been your job for a long time. Okay, how do we take that information and what does that mean? And I know you don't want to be in any way mercenary or anything like that. But then you're thinking, all right. The, the Crown, you're going to get a lot of binge watching of The Crown. And what does that mean for Netflix at a time when, you know, they could do with more binge watching? That's a very interesting thought. I'm, uh, I, I feel a little dumb that I didn't think of it. Um, not surprised that you, you immediately thought of it. That's just how you think. But then when we were talking more, talking about tourism yeah. to mm-hmm. London. People are going to want to feel close to the Queen with just sort of being there, even though yeah. she's not there. Um, and also combination of the pound being at a... I don't know, 35-year low-ish, right. give or take. Um, so that that's a help to the UK when they need it. Um, so things are not great. Uh, just a terribly sad day. I mean, I love the Queen. I'm such an Anglophile. As, as uh, Courtney said, everyone we know, their entire life. Right. This is the, the, back, only, this monarch. Is the only monarch there has ever been. Exactly. And it seemed that there would ever be. Right. As crazy as that sounds. I know. It it seems shocking, even though it shouldn't have been shocking at all. Um, Her death takes place on a day where there was a historic ECB rate hike. Um, The the backdrop to her death is an England that is a UK that is just strapped. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And and you think about Brexit and you think about also where the UK really, in some sense, pushed back on some of the the, the structural issues that are in the EC in the in the European Union, especially around the currency. But um, it, it, you know, it's just interesting if you if you look at where UK equities have actually they're the best performing developed equity market in the world. Some of that is a function of a weaker currency mm-hmm. uh, and some of that is a function of at least relative balance. And if you just look at the weighting, the FTSE, you have some of some some of the most iconic big companies across Europe actually sit in the FTSE and sit in the UK. We will be right back. Welcome back to Fast Money. A troubling trend is brewing in the bond market. Junk loan defaults are starting to climb, and this could be an early warning sign for serious challenges ahead for the economy. Frank Osino is in the space managing a leveraged loan fund. He is a bank loan sector lead at New Fleet Asset Management. Frank, great to have you with us. Hi, Melissa. Thank you. So uh, things are starting to get worse, but can you put it into context for us? How bad is it so far? Yeah, sure. We're In the last few weeks, even last couple of months, we started to see uh, downgrades pick up. Uh, we've had four straight months of uh, more downgrades than upgrades. Uh, we've seen five defaults in the last five weeks. Uh, many of them uh, anticipated Cineworld just yesterday. Uh, and another data point that we like to track here at New Fleet is loans that are trading below 80 cents on the dollar. And we're seeing that pick up as well. Uh, having said that, uh, when we put all of that data in context, uh, it's still very early to, uh, you know, directionally, though, that data is perhaps concerning. But uh, when we look at history, it's still very light. Uh, defaults at less than 1% today uh, is well below the historic average of 3.5%. Uh, defaults were 6% back in the 2000, 2002, you know, the last traditional recession in my mind. Uh, loans trading below 80 are 3% of the market. Uh, that's up from 1% to start the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there have been periods where we've seen 10% of the market, you know, uh, trading below 80. Right. The, US, the U.S. downgrade, oil, and, and downgrades to upgrades as well. We've seen periods where the ratio has been 5 to 1. Right. 
Um, so defaults to rise, that's a foregone conclusion in your eye. It's going to hit dot-com bubble levels. And I'm wondering which sectors are going to feel it the most this time around. Uh, this time around, it looks to me like there's going to be uh, defaults or stress. Uh, the dispersion is going to be wide. Uh, every industry has a creditor to uh, that has a story. Uh, so I don't see uh, housing driving it or tech driving it or the cyclicals driving it. I think there's a name or two uh, everywhere that, that 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 may come under stress. Uh, and the reason for that is that over the last few years, you know, the LBO market, the leveraged finance market has grown uh, and there are borrowers across industries that may have low interest coverage or debt burdens that uh, they might not be able to sustain. And it, it wasn't driven by any one industry. Frank, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. Um, so we haven't seen defaults really move a lot yet, but how would you, how do you think about the setup? Are companies in better shape, worse shape, or the same as prior cycles where, where defaults really picked up? No, I, I think borrowers have done a great job post-COVID of taking cost out, uh, raising prices, managing margins. Balance sheets are in very good shape. Uh, there isn't a lot of debt due in the next couple of years. That, that The refinancing wave happened and pushed out runway. So I would say by and large borrowers in good shape. But there are borrowers at the margin uh, that will be impacted. You know, when, when capital markets dries up for, uh, you know, a sin world, like I said, like yesterday, uh, then, then you file for bankruptcy. So I think borrowers by and large are in good shape. I would also add that not all defaults are created equal. Right. There are uh, situations where you might have, you know, an all first lien structure or a bad business with a bad capital structure. Uh, those might be low recovery type situations. But I think mm -hmm. about, you know, a borrower like Carnival, eight billion of first lien loans, first lien debt with twenty five billion dollars of book value collateral, you know, the IP, the customer list, the ships. 25 billion of book value collateral against an $8 billion first lien loan, that could be a good outcome, right? That could be a high recovery. And so it's my job and the job of the analyst team to, to ferret those out and find those. Frank, thanks for joining us. Thank Frank you. Casino of New Fleet Asset Management. Um, Tim, we often talk about on the show about HYG and what this indicates and watching this and seeing a spike higher and that's concerning, et cetera, et cetera. How have you been watching this? Yeah, I think the HYG, but looking at high-yield spreads, folks at home can do this by just almost Googling OAS, H-Y-O-A-S. It'll bring up essentially the Bank of America high-yield spread, and you can see that on July 5th, we were up at 6%. Uh, we got... We were, you know, we got back down to four and a quarter. We're back near five percent. What does it mean in the context of history? Well, first of all, junk bonds owe a great deal of gratitude to the Fed, and so every time the Fed goes out there and says, "Hey, you know, higher for longer," um, that there's a lot of institutions that reached out the risk curve. This is what the Fed did, and and at six percent, if I can get a three fifty two year, um, think about what people were buying in the junk bond market out at you know five percent just six to nine months ago, or certainly twelve to eighteen months ago. So that's the biggest impact here. I, I think where liquidity is light, you're going to also see uh, buyer strike on a lot of stuff. Yeah. Getting new issues done is one of the biggest problems here in the junk market. I mean, I mean that's same goes for EM debt. Yep. It pushed out a lot of institutional investors oh. to buy EM debt. And now with the rising dollar, spiking dollar, that's going to come. You were seeing 50-year issues in Mexico at, you know, at 3.5%. I mean, so absolutely. 
And I think a lot of the concern here, right, is that we're in a high rate environment. So this is going to put a lot of stress on those companies who aren't going to be able to pay back those loans. But there is the idea here that if rates are peaking, right, if we do see them come down, many of these institutions are still on average like three years away from any of these loan payments mm -hmm. coming due. This might not be as much of a concern if we start to see rates turn over. So I think that's the big thing you have to watch. It's probably too early to see this as a warning side. Time for tapping the tape. Shares of Lyft zooming nearly 17% higher today. That's the big, biggest gain since November 2020. The odd thing about today's surge is that there doesn't seem to be any real catalyst. We didn't see a street upgrade. We didn't see any market moving news. Uh, worth noting, the stock is still 60% lower this year. Um, Tim, you've said before you like Lyft over Uber. Here we well, well I, I like it on a relative value trade, and I, I, I've historically liked Uber over Lyft, and I'm not just conveniently now flipping and said I got this trade totally right. I mean, you, you've lost a lot of money in both stocks, but if you look at Uber versus Lyft, it's outperformed by 60% in the last six months. It's outperformed by 35% in the last three months. And some of the updates we've gotten from Lyft lately indicate that their third quarter is off to a pretty good start. You're also seeing a better balance and, and availability on the driver's side, although ASPs have fallen. Um, some of their cost base is changing. And so this is the dynamic that the street wants to hear. Uh, I just look at the, the relative value here. I tell you what, I, I would like to own both companies, but at this point, owning Lyft to me is the better place to be. Dan, you just bought some Lyft. Yeah, I did last week. Um, and, you know, here's the thing. I th agree with everything Tim just said here. Another theme out here is autonomous driving, right? And, and Waymo, which is an alphabet company, you know, has a stake in Lyft. They have a partnership um, as they work towards autonomous uh, robo-taxis and the like. And so what I'm trying to do is sift through some of these names right here where the baby's been thrown out with the bathwater a little bit. But when I, when I bought this stock last week, I mean, they had 50% of their market cap in cash. Now, the stock is obviously up 20-some percent in that period of time. But I think their balance sheet is okay on an adjusted basis. They're making money. I know that there's plenty of things to kind of, uh, you know, shake a stick at when you want to talk about a company like this is making money on an adjusted basis here. But I just think it's a bit washed out here. So I went into this as an investment. But trust me, people, these sorts of things can turn into trades, especially if you get big moves this quickly. It just did. So is it? No, I mean, I, you know, let's, let's see if I get a two-handle on it. Here, here's the deal, Mel. You know, they're supposed to have 20% revenue growth for the next couple of years coming off a very low base. I look at a name like this, clearly an acquisition target. I know that there's a lot of areas where, you know, the regulators are not going to allow acquisitions. I don't think this is a space where that's going to be the case. Could a Waymo buy a company like this in a heartbeat for like a $10 billion enterprise value? Be a rounding error. All right, quick programming note here. Do not miss our own Tim Seymour with Brian Sullivan for this month's CNBC Pro Talks. That is tomorrow, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Head on over to CNBC.com slash pro slash talks for more. Up next, we're just an hour away from the NFL kickoff on NBC and Peacock, and we're homing in on the sports betting stocks ahead of the game. NBC's Steve Kornacki, the master of the Telestrator, joins us next for a look at the odds. And he's wearing khakis, I think, plus snapping up the gains, shares of the social media stock jumping for the second straight day, and option traders are betting the gains will keep on coming. How they're playing it next, Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. You know what that sound means. Football is back. The NFL kicks off just hours from now. This season's sport betting on the league is set to reach record levels. Nearly 47 million adults expected to pace a bet, place a bet. NBC's Steve Kornacki is here now. He not only follows politics, he's also part of the NBC sports team. And he's here to break down some of the interesting odds before week one starts. Steve, walk us through. 
Yeah, let's take either some high-risk investments here if you want to bet the NFL. How about the futures market, the Super Bowl odds here to win it all? The Bills come into the season as the favorite. Six to one odds you could get right now on the Bills to win the Super Bowl. That's the best there is in the league. Notice the Rams, the defending Super Bowl champions, sitting there at 11 to one. Obviously, those two teams playing in a few hours. Those numbers could change within a few hours. So if you like what you see, maybe you get in right now. By the way, we could take you to the other end of this. Who are the longest shots on the board? The Houston Texans, 400 to 1 to win the Super Bowl. Another way you could bet things, you get an even money bet on the total number of wins that teams get during the regular season. 17 game regular season, so take the Bills here. The number is 11 and a half. Do you think they're going to go over or under that number? If you think the Bills are going to win, 12 games or more during the regular season. You could bet the over. If you think they're going to win or 11 or less, the under. These are even money bets. Again, these are the biggest numbers you're going to see. If you're looking for a little bit of a local action here, the Giants' expectations are <laughs> modest, seven wins. The Jets, even more modest, five and a half. We've certainly seen that before. Here's a fun one. What are the odds a team's going to go 17-0? You get... 15 to 1 odds the team goes 17 and 0. I think that might be too low, by the way. The other way around, 0 and 17, you get 8 to 1 odds that a team goes winless this season. You could also have fun with some of the players. Here's the top quarterbacks in the league. Who is going to throw the most touchdown passes among these quarterbacks? Tom Brady turned 45 a month ago, comes into the season as the 6 to 1 favorite that throw the most TD passes during the regular season. How about that? That's amazing. Steve, thank you so much. Nice to see you. Steve Kornacki awesome. of NBC. Right? Always delivers. Always delivers. So you, Maestro of the Telestrator. You going with the same same game parlay on this Bills-Rams uh, uh, game? Yes, yeah, I mean, you're not changing just, a thing. Not a girl. I have no idea. I don't bet. <laughs> but by the way, you can watch the Buffalo Bills take on the defending Super Bowl champion L.A. Rams in NFL kickoff. That is tonight, 7 p.m. on NBC right on. and Peacock. But, of course, all of this, all of this talk about odds. You want to talk about the sports betting stocks. Dan, and one of the problems of the sports betting stocks in the past, maybe less so now, is a promotional activity that they've had to engage in in order to acquire customers. Yeah, and that has obviously been a huge cost, as you just mentioned. But like at DraftKings, for instance, you're expected to see you know margins go from, let's say, the mid to high 30s up until the low 40s and maybe in the mid 40s over the next year or two as they obviously have acquired many of these customers if they're able to keep them and the economics get a bit better. You know, DraftKings is interesting to me. It's had this nice run off the bottom. I remember last summer reading about a deal that they did with a company called SimpleBet, which is in-game betting. So Kornacki just told us about the odds for teams to win a certain amount of games over the course of the season or who's going to win the Super Bowl, that sort of stuff. What about the sort of stuff that Guy has been talking about for a long time that could be the savior of some of these networks that have spent so much money on these sports rights, in-game betting, like logging into a long football game that you normally wouldn't uh, watch, but you might want to do it because you could make a bet on what the next play is, a pass or a mm-hmm. throw, you know, or, or a run or that sort of thing. So that sort of stuff is kind of interesting to me, and we'll see how that plays out over the next couple of years. Yeah, and that also boosts viewership, by the way, right? It gets you engaged totally. in, in watching linear TV or whatever you're, you know, obviously you're probably watching linear. You could be watching on streaming, though, like Peacock. No, and, and again, those, those same game parlays, uh, which they're called, you could be watching a game and you have three or four things going on. And in fact, that's a much more interesting way to bet. By the way, it's a lot more profitable for DraftKings or FanDuel. DraftKings is adjusted EBITDA positive expectations for 23, which is huge because the whole story has been a cash burn, an addressable market. Everybody knows it's getting bigger. But these 
these companies that have not been profitable, but they've started to turn the corner here. That's part of the reason, as Dan pointed out, the stock's 70 percent off those May lows and outperforming the market. Coming up, shares of Snap up big for a second straight day. But will the climb continue? We'll tell you how the options traders are playing the social stock next. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Oh, snap. I never say that. Uh, shares of the social media company closing with big gains for a second day in a row. The recent move coming after CEO Evan Spiegel laid out his turnaround plan for the company yesterday and said he plans to grow users by 30 percent by the end of next year. That's sparking a ton of activity among options traders today. Mike Coe has the action. Mike. Yes, they were indeed snapping up options in Snap. It was the oh. sixth busiest single stock option. We saw calls outpacing puts. Now, the busiest options were actually the weekly 12-strike calls, but those were only a day trade because they expired tomorrow. So I was actually looking at an institutional buy of 5,000 of the November 12 calls. The buyer paid $2.10 for that. That buyer is betting that Snap shares could be at least 13% higher by the third Friday in November. Dan, are you surprised that the, uh, the rally continued for Snap? Not really. I mean, Mel, you know, Evan Spiegel spoke at Code yesterday after we did the show, after we talked about it in addressing some of those growth prospects that they put out internally that we discussed on the show a little bit. And I think the audience really liked it. And so, um, you know, again, I think he's laying out the gauntlet here. He basically they cut guidance, they cut staff, they've cut projects that are not important to them and they're really focused. And those targets for 20 percent revenue growth and 30 percent user growth, they are not going to be easy to achieve. So if they are successful with the stock down here, I think this stock really starts to work here. So, again, this is a name I've been long. I've been averaging into it. I think it continues to work with expectations. Low near term, high longer term. Corny, what's your favorite social stock or do you not touch the space? Yeah, I think my trouble with a lot of these right now is either they're really extreme high valuations or they don't have profits right now. And I think that's really my concern with them. So maybe as a longer term play, it can be helpful. But Snap is a good example. They have come out before with positive um, forward looking growth and positive forward looking revenue. And they haven't met those in the past because of larger overarching factors. And this is a pretty high bar they just set for themselves. So I would proceed with a little bit of caution there. All right, Mike Coe, thank you. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow's the full show of Options Action, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. All right, up next, your final trades. Time for the final trade. Dan Nathan from the Code Conference. Yeah, Nike showing good relative strength. Looks like it wants to make a move to 120. Courtney Garcia. I'm looking at Eli Lilly. I think the, the growth prospects here look great with some of the drugs in the pipeline. And I do think this is a, a stock that can do well in the kind of re-environment we're in right now. Karen Feinerman. Yes, all that talk about Snap made me realize, wow, Google is so much better. Alphabet, final trade. So there, Dan. Uh, Tim Seymour. Mel's got the under on the Jets. I'm going Caesars, and I think they had record quarters. I think their asset sale on the strip looks good. All right, thanks so much for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 more Fast. Meantime, don't go anywhere. CNBC special Blue Chip Playbook hmm. starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.